The views and opinions of this program are those of its host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 90.1 FM, KKFI, Midcoast Radio Project, or its staff and volunteers. Gratitude goes out to you today for listening to Eco Radio KC on 90.1 FM KKFI Kansas City Community Radio. This is a locally made exploration into positive solutions to some of today's ecological challenges for all of us working to create a healthier future for our communities and for the world you live in. Thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC. My name is Darnell. Today, Eco Radio KC recorded a panel discussion, Perennial Agriculture with the Land Institute on October 14, 2023 at the Lawrence Public Library. Kernza is a perennial wheat grain showing promise as a viable food crop that requires less tillage. Staff of the Land Institute presented on local and global research in perennial agriculture. We open our recording of the panel with Amy June Friesman, land relations specialist, who then introduced Laura Kemp, perennial agricultural project field station manager, followed by Sajil Stoppet, postdoctoral research Kernza intermediate wheatgrass, all at the Land Institute. They and other panelists present on local and global research in perennial agriculture featuring the latest on Kernza perennial grain and more. Please remember, you can play and replay this presentation on our podcast of the episode. Eco Radio KC supports the work of the Land Institute for a future in which humans flourish as members of a thriving ecosphere. Achieving this future requires reconciling the human economy with nature's economy, and we believe focusing on food and how we produce it is a transformative first step. In this future, agriculture regenerates the soil, water, and air upon which all life depends. We are all in this together, and it will take all of us to make the world safe for human habitation for millennia to come. We at Eco Radio are glad to encourage awareness and protection of our world. Our goal is to ensure our listeners are aware of how we can create a sustainable present for a sustainable future. This will be a great radio hour. Now, our show. Wes Jackson is a prolific writer. For my part, I think New Roots for Agriculture really kind of set the stage for me coming into the Land Institute this year, being totally unaware of our research programs prior to. Um, I think it does a really good sort of foundation laying as far as why we would study perennial agriculture um, and specifically grain agriculture that mimics prairie ecosystems. Um, those themes are what that whole book is kind of about, and it's a pretty, for the layperson like myself, it's a pretty easy read. So I'll pass the mic to Laura. So yeah, I'm Laura Kemp. I manage a research station here in Florence. A lot of people don't know that we have a little satellite station here. I started working for the Land Institute in 2013 and moved here in 2016 to help facilitate this site. The 
field station property was donated to the Land Institute. Um, on site, we have a farmhouse. We have the barn built in 1879. And we also have a granary that was restored into sort of a gathering space by Jim and Cindy. We use it as a conference area, sort of shared workspace. So like, the property itself is about 220 acres. Two thirds of that is treed. So, you know, the arable ground is a lot less. Uh, lots of it is in grown. There's been a few uh, like attempts at prairie restoration sort of before we acquired the property. And then we've also got space for research projects. We are aiming to develop agricultural systems that more closely mimic natural systems. So we have a few different research branches. We have a crop breeding group that have perennial plants, things that are there year after year, and we have diversity. We have a mixture of both living species. And so our research departments, we have a crop breeding group, we have a ecology group, and then we also have a perennial culture lab that focuses more on sort of the social aspects of the just sustainable system. The crop breeding stuff mostly happens in Salina. Our field station in Lawrence primarily focuses more on that ecological intensification. So lots of things that have happened over the last seven years since I've been here, projects that have been put in place and have served their purpose. One thing that we're working on right now that I'm a little more closely linked to is this uh, biculture plot, or acre biculture of Prunza and alfalfa. So far, it's just been an alfalfa field. We've been uh, sort of front-loading it with nitrogen from the alfalfa, and we're getting ready on Monday to plant the Prunza. Within that field, there's a few different related projects. Every time you have a tillage event, the roots and the organic matter in that soil is decomposed and carbon is lost out of that system. What we hope happens over time under a perennial mixture is that carbon is effectively moved out of the nitrogen or out of the atmosphere and stored below ground. Another interesting project on that field is designed by a ecology technician, Madeline Du Bois. This one's really exciting and new and fun for us. So we know that this field is depleted of nutrients, one of those being phosphorus. Phosphorus is a concern because we cannot artificially manufacture it in the same way that you can manufacture nitrogen. It's mined, it has to be mined, it's a finite resource. And so in terms of sustainability, we kind of need to know how to recycle the phosphorus that we use. Madeline has partnered with the Richard Institute out of Vermont to design a urine recycling trial on this field. So it's just what it sounds like, collecting urine, and has calculated out an application rate just like you would a fertilizer. And so she will be collecting data on biomass productivity on both the alfalfa and the Carenza over time. Yep, the field station also has a couple of perennial cultures project. I'll let Amy talk a little bit more about that. One one demonstration plot for the civic science project that we have. Some seed preservation, like genetic preservation projects. But it's just a very brief overview of what we do. 
at the field station here in Portland? Well, I give an overview of what's going on in the field station. I work within a team uh, within the plant breeding groups uh, of the Land Institute, and like one of the things I like to start with this figure. Like uh, on the left, you have the regular wheat plant with its uh, short roots, and then on the left uh, is the kerns or intermediate wheat grass, which is a perennial with extensive roots that can go as far down as two and a half meter. So what this kind of immediately demonstrates is like the role uh, perennial plants have in holding on to the soil, holding on to water and nutrients, and reducing uh, soil erosion. Like when you have annual plant, uh, we have to till it every year, uh, every season, plant it again. So all of that causes like uh, loss of soil, loss of nutrients. So the one like the main goal of land is to transform our grain production from annual to perennial so that um, we can not have to till for multiple years, significantly reducing the need to add uh, like more external fertilizer, reduce the uh, soil erosion and also help sequester uh, carbon in the soil. So those are the goals that motivate uh, the plant breeding at the Land Institute and we are working on intermediate wheatgrass or kernza, which is a grain, it's going to be like wheat, but then there are also breeders that are working on uh, legumes uh, like sandfoin and uh, that uh, fix nitrogen in the soil, but also are very good for pollinators. That's like pretty pink flowers. Seeds are very tasty and make tasty hummus out of it. Cook it like lentils. Then there is uh, silphium, which is native to um, this part of the world, a relative of sunflower. Uh, so that can be used as a perennial oil seed. And there are also research groups that are working on perennial sorghum, perennial wheat. Uh, we have international colleagues that are working on perennial rice. So it's kind of a, a whole systems approach, uh, not just one type of perennial grain, but multiple perennial grains that we are trying to work on improving. And like um, in 10,000 years of uh, human agriculture has mostly been based around animal grains. So it's a big challenge to uh, speed up uh, domestication and development of perennial grains. We do have some perennials in our agriculture system, like fruit trees, but still like 50% of world's human calories come from rice, corn, and wheat. So the annual grains still like cover a lot of our land and hence it's responsible for a lot of soil erosion and like all those negative externalities. So, so that's where like puts uh, the role of perennial future very important in the sustainability of our farming system. So the goal for Karnza is like to eventually get to uh, yields of like two and a half uh, tons per hectare, which is similar to the yield of uh, wheat kits in Kansas. In the land institute, we have kind of uh, done about 12 cycles of selection, but and then uh, the wheat breeder BD thinks that we have to do 30 to 32 more cycles based on like the progress we have made to get that kind of yield which would be like very transformative for growers in the state and in the Great Plains area. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the Kernza plant itself. The Kernza plant itself is not native to the United States, but neither is wheat. Um, so uh, it, it comes from uh, the area between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. Current day countries of uh, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan. 
It was introduced to the U.S. Uh, by the USDA Department of Agriculture in the 1930s as a forage crop, and it has been used as a forage crop. But in the 1980s, uh, the Rodale Institute they work uh, on organic agriculture, and they're based in uh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, so they started like evaluating uh, hundreds of plants, perennials as like potential for domestication, and intermediate wheat grass was one of them and then like they did uh, two cycles of improvement and then the land took up uh, like the material from there and then started continuing and right now we are in the 14th generation now the key challenge with like a perennial grain like for a wheat you plant it and then in the same year uh, you harvest you get the data on like how it's performing then you can select the best plant and go on so every year like you can advanced generation and in places in Mexico like I mean Norman Borlaug like was there the father of the green revolution he like got two generations because he would uh, plant it in one location in the summer and then in winter he would go south where it's still warm and then plant another generation that way he was able to advance improve like two generations in a year but that kind of opportunity doesn't exist in perennial you have to wait several years like you plant it in uh, this fall, then you have to wait for the end of next summer to make the first observations on how the plants are performing. But because it's the perennial, you want to see how it performs over multiple years. Because one year's data is not enough, so then you wait another year and get a second year's data. So when you are just doing uh, selection based on field performance, uh, it was taking uh, three years to advance one generation, which means like it would take 90 additional years for something like comparable yield to wheat. But in 2014, what we started doing was implementing this method called genomic selection. So now the plants, like uh, we extract the DNA from all the, uh, from our 5,000 plants, uh, and then we get the uh, like the DNA information, sequence information on all of them and then take thousand of them to collect uh, their performance data and as we do that uh, for a few years now we have like some, a correlation model between what the what the genetic information is and how those plants perform in the field so now for subsequent generation what we are able to do is apply that model and then when the plants are very young in the greenhouse we can extract the dna and then do the genotyping and based on the performance of like plants with similar genetics, estimate which of these plants are most likely to be good in the field also, and then select the 100 best plants when they are young, only take them into the field and do the crossing, and that way like do a, make our selections within a year instead of waiting three years. So right now we are able to advance uh, generation one generation a year, which is like most other annual cereals, and subsequently our goal is to be able to advance two generations in a year. So the targeted uh, yield achievement of like that was 32 generations, we can conceivably achieve in 16 years down from 90 years. That's uh, what uh, the team is working on and there, there have been some promising results and, and like, I just contribute to a small uh, part of that whole operation. Oh yeah, so the See, I just understand. I just thought that that was <laughs> yeah. So the the intermediate wheatgrass so it came into the brought into the US in 1930 because the Rodale Institute 
Kernza. Yeah, the Kernza. Oh yeah, Kernza is kind of a trade name we give to intermediate wheatgrass um, because, like, intermediate wheatgrass can be used as a forage and it can be used as just an annual, not a perennial. So you can harvest it every year. Uh, and because the seed was limited, right, and then Kernza was, I mean, intermediate wheatgrass was becoming popular. Uh, we didn't wanna be in a situation where, like. Uh, other companies are just selling wheat or other grains with the name of uh, like perennial. Uh, like by having that name trademark, we're trying to protect the limited seed quantity and to ensure that it was being grown as perennial. Bringing the positive vibes and good tunes every Tuesday morning. Steady roll down Easy Street with me, your wise guy, Easy Ed. We're hitting all musical directions from jazz, soul, rock to blues, funk and hip hop where we unify genres and connect the artist with the listener with facts, stories, and a chill atmosphere. We have ride-on grooves, spinning wax, and motivating beats that'll guarantee to get your foot tapping. Get your morning started every Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. by taking a cruise down Easy Street. KKFI is emptying out our closet, and you can help us. Most items in our prize closet are at a discounted donation. Who wouldn't want a cool KKFI hoodie to keep warm this winter? Or a cool pint glass to stuff in a stocking? Go to www.kkfi.org to find out more. Supplies and sizes are limited. And don't forget to use code FREESHIP at checkout for free shipping. Thank you for supporting your community radio station. You're listening to Amy June Breesman. She's a land relations specialist with the Land Institute. She's leading a panel discussion that happened in October 2023 at the Lawrence Public Library concerning the Land Institute and their latest developed product, Kernza, a perennial wheat which is good for food and drink. It's important to know the Land Institute is transforming agriculture perennially. You can find out more at landinstitute.org. Yeah, so as Delta mentioned, we're estimating now that Kernza can reach the same yield as wheat, maybe within a 15 to 20 year timeline. And so this was, this is our proof of concept from a concept developed or co-developed by Watch Jackson in the 80s. We started a Kernza program in the early 2000s. It was truly invested in around 2010. And here we are 13 years after that, sharing it together. So that's something that's so inspiring to me, along with our collaborators in China at Yunnan University have recently developed a perennial rice. And so there was a research report published late last year. This rice was shared with farmers in 2018, it's PR23, and that variety has yielded on par, actually a little more than annual rice for four years two harvests per year, so that's eight harvests. The quality of the soil has increased, labor has decreased, the cost of inputs has decreased. They're able to sell it for a similar price on the market. So knowing that that is a possibility is inspiring us that now is the time that we really need to invest in all these crop programs, which Cecil mentioned. 
And we have more collaborators around the world who are developing perennial flax, perennial barley. So we're really building this international initiative um, where people can share germplasm and knowledge uh, across the world to create a new paradigm for agriculture. So we all feel really inspired by that. I hope it's inspiring to you too. I can even talk a little bit more about the um, the civic science program. So that's a lot of the literature that's in the back of the room. Um, we have several ongoing civic science programs that you all might be interested in tapping into if you haven't already. Um, just by a show of hands, is anyone already a participant in our civic science programs? Okay, wonderful. So we have different programs that are looking at silphium, um, different programs that are looking at perennial polycultures versus annual polycultures. So that's the perennial atlas project that you'll see back there. And these are projects um, and others that my lab, the perennial cultures lab, sort of oversees. The perennial atlas is going to be our largest project yet with uh, hopefully 250 participants across uh, North America. So um, I think we have a lot of folks signed up for that particular project in Kansas, less in Missouri, if y'all have family, also the Northeast and Northwest. Um, and just to speak a little bit more about, you know, I said my title was land relations specialist. Um, that might not land for a lot of folks because it's kind of a new thing. So I'm at the Land Institute to basically be in community with folks um, to really assess sort of methods and pathways for how the Land Institute in its 40-some years going on 50 in Kansas um, might close some of the gaps um, for folks who want to engage and haven't had the opportunity in the past, um, and if they have, and those relationships have kind of fallen to the side, um, I'm looking for places where we can pick those back up. So I'm really happy to be in the room with you all today. Um, if not just you, but maybe your neighbor or your family member in the region would like to link with our programs, um, definitely find me, talk to me. Again, my name is Amy Breesman, and let me be your link into our programs. Um, I'd love to open it up for questions. Yes. Uh, do you have any uh, collaborators or, uh, I guess, experimenters in uh, western Kansas, uh, west of Salina? So I'm not sure. I think we have a good number of Kernswood growers um, sort of centered around Salina, Salem County, and definitely the Northeast and into Nebraska. Kernza needs, um, and Sussel might be able to speak to this a little bit more, but needs like a serious fertilization period to produce grain. So if it doesn't get cold enough, the next year your yields are going to be significantly lower or you might not get grain at all. So Kernza is definitely viable um, as folks were speaking to as a forage crop. So it might be on the landscape as intermediate wheatgrass as forage, but I'm not sure how well it does in western Kansas. I think north to south in Salina it might be like the lower limit yeah, because of the requirement of very cold temperatures to the 4 degrees. But it is a plow the next year. How many years are you harvesting currents at least four? You have to make meal, you want them to grow it for five to eight years? Or you have to replace it every three years? I'm not 100% sure on this, but right now I think it's like uh, two to four years, but like we are trying to make that better. And the yield still yields, but then the yields start declining, and after a few years it makes economic sense to reseed. We're also releasing new varieties, so I think a lot of farmers choose to work with one variety for two to four years and then try the latest. Especially if we have a, a really strong relationship with different researchers in Minnesota, um, 
and they have a breeding program as well where they're developing different strains of Persia than we are in these more uh, southern climates. So it's very regional, like you might think of buying seeds from somebody who grew their plants for seed in Kansas because we live in Kansas and not necessarily sourcing something from the Pacific Northwest. Um, it's kind of the same idea with Kernza in our breeding programs and, and what we are hoping to support people through making those sorts of decisions about what's going to do best in their climate. And maybe it does only yield for two years and then you start to see a decline. I've heard um, and read some things where folks are seeing yields for like five years. So it really depends on your region and the and the strain of Kernza that you've chosen to plant. Just add that like now, as, as the generations are advancing at the Land Institute, now we have the performance data from like year three, year four, year five also. Now, those kind of information can also be working with the model so that we can select plants that perform well for multiple generations as the breeding program matures. Uh, how is uh, Kearns uh, with moisture? Is it drought resistant or does it require a lot of water? So uh, it does not like a lot of water, the water logging. Uh, it needs water at the time of green filling, but most of the time it prefers like soil that drains well and doesn't hold on to water a lot. So kind of similarly, a lot of the varieties that are being produced by different researchers in different geographies, ones that are produced in Kansas, I think are much more drought resistant than ones that you might get in Minnesota. So a, like a yes and to your question. Uh, modern winter wheat uh, breeding has uh, caused uh, modern varieties, modern uh, uh, varieties of wheat to lose the uh, microbial uh, colonizing ability. Do you uh, uh, select, uh, is that a priority in your select? Uh, so our colleagues at the Kansas Biological Survey, Liz Guziel, so Jim Beaver, so they are doing uh, some research on the mycorrhizal interaction uh, with Kernza. Uh, I'm not up to date on what the latest findings are, but yeah, our collaborators are looking into the basic research aspect. Yeah, so just the preliminary trials, this is like not um, published work um, at this point, but Kernza, when they first started looking at this, this when this cohort started looking at it in 2017-ish, Kernza really didn't show a very uh, significant response to a uh, microbial inoculation. It kind of didn't care. It didn't show any at all. But they looked at different cycles over time, these green cycles that we've done, and they kind of see that our newest cycle of Kernza does show an increased response. Um, that's kind of interesting. Um, there are other plants that, um, besides Kernza, that we have breeders working on at the Land Institute that really love mycorrhizal fungi. Um, Silvium is one of them. It's one of our prairie, native Kansas prairie plants. Um, yeah, a lot of Liz's work has been looking at those associations um, because we make a lot of selections of plants that have been grown on soils that have been tilled over time, depleted of these tillage kills, mycorrhizal fungi, so it's no longer present in the soil. So, you know, sometimes we're throwing plants out of our breeding programs because they haven't performed well, well, they never had the thing in the soil that they needed. So that's been also really informative for us too, to know who needs that in the soil to, to cross. 
So how do you do this kind of research that incorporates all these different things at once? You have DNA over here in the greenhouse. You have soil interactions and mycorrhiza over here in the prairie. Lots of Yeah, so I think um, it's a great question. And I can only speak from my experience as a new institute person who does not have a science background. Um, I'm really amazed at the interdependence between programs and the way that, um, especially in the summer when we staff up with a lot of interns, like a lot of flow happens from one program to the next. So a lot of folks, we probably are looking to do more of this in the future, but get somewhat cross-trained in, you know, you're looking at yields, you're looking at soil ecology, you're looking at entomology, you're looking at pollinator habitat, you're looking at all of these above ground and below ground and end use products um, and projects, they all function around each other and in that way we sort of buzz around the campus like a little research community that is sharing ideas all the time. We do a lot of research seminars between, you know, the whole staff will convene either online or at our headquarters um, and a lead scientist will give an hour presentation on what's happening. So in that way we kind of all stay linked up. But I'm happy to hear how other people are sharing knowledge. To kind of kick it back to our internship program in the summer, um, and we do have uh, other folks who are hired through the fall and winter as well, but especially in the summer, I see folks going from the lab to the field to the greenhouse quite often. I would say that I would hope, and from what I think I've witnessed, um, we do a pretty good job at giving everybody like a play of all sort of facets of the research, if that's looking at genes, if that's doing field research. Um, I didn't come in as an intern. I don't know if any of us really did, but we, we certainly all have different aspects of our jobs where we might be on the computer one day and in the field the next, um, just running through everything all the time. Yeah, none of us up here are necessarily the lead scientists on that, but um, definitely our, our colleague Liz Huckel yeah. um, at KU, I think that's been a, a real area for focus just in general. Um, I don't know if she's getting down to where she can look at the different variables just yet, but... Um, I was going to ask about when you're making carnza, are you trying to make it with more gluten or the same amount of gluten or less gluten than wheat? Or are you, trying, are you trying to change the starches and the complex carbohydrates so that you have more or less uh, lacticide that affect the malty quality and how you, I mean, how, how do you decide how much protein and how much of these various carbohydrates and, and, you know, and how much gluten and stuff? for various industrial purposes, or making bread, or making all. So, uh, we are uh, so early in the stage of domestication, like the, the main uh, traits that we are focusing on are like uh, the seed size, uh, grain yield, uh, like shattering, we don't want the seeds to fall, stay on the spike, uh, diseases, most of the more basic things. I mean, the gluten that Kernza has is much, much weaker than wheat. And that's why like we still need it to be blended with some amount of wheat if you want to make uh, like traditional uh, recent breads. But for other uses, like for cereal or for like flat breads, like chapatis, uh, it works as is. Uh, but yeah, like those are kind of not traits that uh, lead so they can directly like uh, it's focusing and just making it more complicated with other grains. There's um so part of one of my colleagues in the perennial cultures lab um, 
Lydia Nicholson has been working on developing some educational materials called Kernza in Context, and that's more for like a high school audience and maybe a little bit undergrad. Um, so it's used a little more base, but um, she does have a whole lesson on the gluten quality of Kernza specifically, and I think we're hoping to launch that program officially next year. It's still in beta testing right now, but um, we're really interested in how the gluten interacts differently or similarly. Um, but as Cezal was was pointing to, it does act very differently. So the bread that we have in the back, I don't, I didn't get the percentage of Kernza flour to to annual flour, uh, annual wheat flour, but it's certainly not 100% Kernza flour. Um, it bakes up very differently. If anybody in the room has tried, um, it acts very different. But I have. Um, recently been enjoying the rolled flakes that are made as uh, sort of a brewer's flaked grain uh, for malting. Been eating those like oatmeal and it, you really get the full flavor of the kanza itself. It's very thinny, uh, very aromatic. That's available from our partners based in Kansas Sustaining Green. Um, yeah, it's similar but different in a lot of ways to wheat and, and we're still sort of working out the sort of end use, we have an end use um, specialist. Uh, he's doing all the, that end use science, yeah. A little bit earlier, you were talking about uh, enhancing uh, longevity of the plant by nutrient recycling. The sixth principle of regenerative agriculture uh, emphasizes bringing uh, livestock into the meat. Uh, operation uh, and that really takes the lid off of improving soil fertility and you know, micro life in the soil. Uh, any uh, sort of research that involves uh, livestock to um, help with that recycling effort? We want to. <laughs> um, we, we had some plans um, for our food station in Lawrence and it was just logistically too much to figure out at that time. Doors definitely not closed on that. I know that um, I most closely worked with Tim Cruz. He was our soil ecologist for a while, um, for a long time. But he really has an interest in incorporating animals. We haven't done it at this point, but um, hopefully soon. And we do have growers, um, primarily in the Intermountain West, who use uh, Kernza grain as a forage crop and harvest grain. So that's a big sort of plus to Kernza is that it can be used as a dual-use crop. Um, and to your point, you can graze it um, once your, your grain is harvested, and it's a really high-quality high forage. That's why it was brought here. So um, I think that's a really exciting aspect, and there's much more research to be done. Um, to be published about what that interaction looks like when you are able to graze it. Oklahoma State uh, wheat breeding program, uh, they emphasize uh, forage being able to pasture early spring before uh, the winter wheat goes to seed, and uh, they breed for the number of pillars, the number of uh, seed heads, which during the grazing period, of course, increases the uh, biomass that the, the, that the uh, livestock can harvest. Did I see another hand? I was just hoping you could follow up on your previous comment about Kernza and who's growing it and how, how we can get it. Sure. Oh, yeah. You mentioned earlier, I think before everybody was assembled, that you can buy the cereal back here at Dillon's. Sure can. Can you expand on that? Sure. Um, I bought that at the Dillon's on 23rd. Um, 
It says limited edition on the package. I don't know if anybody on our team necessarily knows how limited. Um, but their current set is grown on about 4,000 acres in the U.S. right now, um, up from 520 2019. So um, we've seen quite an accelerated uptake in people who want to grow Kernza. There's actually not enough of a market demand right now for us to give everybody a license that wants to grow it. So there are Kernza, you know, commercially available products. Um, I mentioned our partner Sustain Green. Um, they're based in Kansas. They have flour. They have rolled flakes. Really good oatmeal. Um, <laughs> they have egg noodles. Um, I've tried a bunch of these things, and they're delicious. Um, we also have our partners at Perennial Pantry, where you can get kernza flour and whole grain. Cascadia Farms has this kernza cereal right now. Um, Kodiak Cakes picked up a, a kernza recipe for their like super protein packed pancake. Yeah, so there's actually a QR code on one of the pieces, the like tan piece of paper back there that will tell you, it'll take you to kernza.org and tell you where you can buy all of these different products. Um, so there are two <laughs> breweries right now that have a Kernza beer on tap. Um, so that's going to be Pre-State Brewing and Lawrence Beer Company. But those are on tap right now and available. It's a Prairie Defender at Pre-State and... Perennial Pub Ale. Perennial Pub Ale at Lawrence Beer Company. Um, so you can get some Kernza beer locally as well. But Patagonia also has a Kernza Lager, um, which is how a lot of folks have have kind of come into the Kernza world um, and more being developed all the time. So You've been listening to Amy June Breesman and a panel of the specialists from the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas, talking about their recent development, Kernza, a perennial wheatgrass. We'll be right back after this. Support for KKFI brought to you by the Center for Arts and Letters at Rockhurst University, welcoming audiences to events including concerts, poetry readings, book discussions, fine art exhibitions, lectures, workshops, and more. Learn more at rockhurst.edu forward slash center dash arts dash letters. Give the gift they will talk about for years to come. A KKFI guest DJ certificate, a one-time donation of $200 or a monthly sustaining donation of $16.67 will get your loved one an hour to share their musical taste on the local music program of their choice. A board operator will be provided. They will even get a recording of their DJ experience. Go to kkfi.org and click on the donation button or call 816-931-3122 for more information. I'm Dr. Anthony Lazowitz, and this is Climate Connections. When cold weather arrives and you turn off the thermostat, your energy bills may go up too. But you can save money and stay comfortably warm in winter by properly insulating your house and making a few simple changes. A lot of heat can escape your home through drafty or old windows. So if you do not have new energy-efficient windows, you can help keep warm air inside your home by sealing your windows with easy-to-install plastic film from the hardware store. Hanging insulated curtains can also hold heat inside at night, and opening those curtains during the day to let the sun in can warm your home naturally. If you often leave the house during the day, you can program your thermostat to stay low when no one is home, and warm up in the afternoon before you return. According to the U.S. Department of Energy, 
adjusting the thermostat by just 7 to 10 degrees for 8 hours a day can lower your bills by up to 10% a year. That not only saves you money, it can help prevent planet warming carbon pollution by reducing the need for electricity and fossil fuels. So taking simple steps to save energy in your home is a win for both your wallet and the climate. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org. You're listening to Amy June Briesman. She's a land relations specialist with the Land Institute. She's leading a panel discussion that happened in October 2023 at the Lawrence Public Library concerning the Land Institute and their latest developed product, Kernza, a perennial wheat which is good for food and drink. It's important to know the Land Institute is transforming agriculture perennially. You can find out more at landinstitute.org. We're working different milling processes to figure out how it could be a more major component um, for breweries. And there's also a lot of growth right now with distilleries, and that's where the current of flavor actually comes in a little more, is through whiskey. So there will be more and more um, currents of whiskeys on the market over the next couple of years. The point is the Land Institute website a good place to go to find out where else in the country but in the world we're doing research on perennial That's where I've learned a lot, yeah. I think our website uh, is, you can spend a lot of time on there. Um, and there's a lot of external links as well to our partners. Um, and I think it's organized by different programs that they're linked to, if that's a Kernza program, if that's Silphium. And there's like one international program within the work, and there you can see a map of like where collaborators around the world are doing stuff. Have you tried to uh, get on uh, public television like uh, America's Test Kitchen and uh, Chris Kimball, his cooking show? I, I don't know. Or the sign up. <laughs> I think that's a great suggestion for our communications team. Yeah. So we're going to message Jerry Kimball tonight. I, um, I did have the good fortune to meet somebody from um, Kansas City PBS uh, at the Caw Valley Sea Fair uh, this spring. And I think we did end up doing a spot on, on the local PBS YouTube. We, we have been featured on PBS and KCR and Arcelor Media in the past. Um, I'm really interested in this food angle, though. And just recently, we've just had a busy month of different colleagues being featured on podcasts. So if anyone wants to leave their email or take one of our cards, we will send you the list. Um, it's what I listened to on my walk here tonight. And it's people working interdisciplinary across our organization on different projects. It's really good listening. Out of curiosity, if anybody would like to volunteer, how they first came to know about the Land Institute or you know, what brought you in the room, um, if it was Curry Festival, if it was a current cereal that you really liked, I'd love to hear. Several years ago, I, I uh, became acquainted with the Land Institute through a presentation by Wes Jackson. And I don't even know if he's still alive or involved. But uh, I thought that was uh, kind of interesting, and uh, it was a 
quite educational, but I don't think the Land Institute has been able to get its name out there enough. And that's the reason I suggest maybe the cooking shows promoting Kernza and talking about it. I think when I came to the Land Institute this year, I was really sort of amazed how many people didn't know about the Land Institute. How did I not know about the Land Institute? I've been farming, doing organic farming for four years. You know, this seems like a really promising, incredible program that we have. Uh, why didn't I know about it sooner? And I think there's been a lot of really conscious pumping of brakes, not wanting to over-promise when we're still developing a lot of these crops. So I think that's where you're seeing a little bit of that dance between getting our name out or doing different public programming or developing new um, civic science programs, um, not wanting to overextend or do too much when we don't know yet what Kearns is going to do over 10 years on someone's farm in Kansas or wherever. So also, I just wanted to say that, you know, when I came to the Land Institute, it was like people would get in touch with us and they'd want to talk to the land breeder about what they were doing in the program. We have a communications team now, which is a relatively new development. Um, so, you know, now we actually have a group of people that are tasked with those jobs, but it used to be really hard to, like, actually, I'm on the tractor today, like, I can't talk on the podcast, you have to, you know, like, you have to schedule it out, um, and so that has been incredible to just, like, have a group of specialists that handles, like, most of that communication. Yeah, I think about five years ago, we were a staff of 35, and this year, there are 80 of us. So, um, I think with currents that developed and the other promising developments we're seeing in other crops, that there is now the need to scale if we want it to be a viable solution. Um, so that's why you'll be hearing more from us and seeing more of us. And the same is true for our operating budget. We're growing about 20% year over year. And we have a big emphasis on living within limits. So it's not growth for growth sakes. It's um, growth to build this international movement so that we can catalyze perennial grains across diverse environments with people growing food based on their traditions and new technology and knowledge. It's tough because we aren't necessarily like conservationists and we're not necessarily just looking at native prairie plants, though Silvium is such an excellent example of what's in our backyard that shows a lot of promise for perennial oilseed crop. And as a dual forage, you call it cattle candy. So people, I think with Silvium in particular, we have a really exciting opportunity to look backwards and forwards. Um, we have um, a collaborator in the back of the room, Marcella, with us today, who is a graduate researcher at KU looking at the historical uses of Sophium, in addition to other folks at the Land Institute who are looking at sort of the ecological benefits specifically of Sophium and the pollinators that uh, Sylvian are bringing as a native prairie plant. So we have external partners, we have folks on our team who are kind of touching those things, but as an organization, we aren't like Grassland Heritage Foundation. That's kind of something that they're doing. We're not Missouri Prairie Foundation, that's something that they're doing. Um, so we, we're really uniquely situated, I think, in that we're working with perennials and trying to mimic prairie ecosystems while not limiting ourselves to those native prairie plants. And we have incredible neighbors who are doing that really vital work. What species of silphium are you working on? There's only at least four throughout Kansas, I think all four, or at least four in Douglas County. 
Well, I looked into all what it's out there uh, recorded. So what I did is a research on um, historical ethnobotany. So it's not that myself went out there. So I kind of looked into what's already published. So it's made mainly into Grifolium clan, Compass clan, I can remember less than that too. And so our focus is into Grifolium, although that's the least um, uses we found, like relationships of Native American. But it's less seen from Oh, well, I think it's, it's into Grifolium. Uh, I'm not in the reader side, but I think that's the focus where the one Institute is working with some uh, interbreeding with the other species. That's what I learned in the last meeting that actually it happened, as you say, right? We have this very interesting exchange where myself, that you know, I'm a graduate student in indigenous studies, I'm there listening what my colleagues that are the scientists are doing in the research of uh, this new crop development. Well, I'm also share with them a perspective that it's kind of new, and I think it's very important. I appreciate that the Latin Institute is it's really uh, prolific on like roadsides. It does really well on like disturbed landscapes here. Um, and Silphium interfolia is the one that the species that the land institute is looking at for an oil seed crop. So its common name would be like prairie grassy. We don't have too much time left, so I just wanna say if you have a burning question, definitely let me know. Uh, can currents be harvested by the same combine that harvests wheat? Or does it have to have a special attachment? <laughs> yeah, I uh, we don't have a combine at the field station here in Lawrence, and I hired a giant combine to come down from Midland. It was a little bit overkill, but great. <laughs> 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 so that question too. Um, we're looking to pilot something called Kernza AKC next year. So folks in the sort of Kansas City metro area, we would like to engage folks that would like to grow Kernza at what I'm calling kind of a hand scale. So something like a four by 40 community garden plot and actually go through hand harvesting, hand threshing, potentially hand milling, um, sort of in commons. So, uh, yeah, if you're interested in that, we're seeing a demo plot for that right now. So. Does anybody have any burning last questions before we hop off the stage? I just want to say how exciting this work is. Yeah. Way to go, team. Thank you so much, Jake um, and Lawrence Public Library for having us. Thank you so much to my colleagues for joining me on a Saturday. Tune in every third Thursday of the month at 7 p.m. for the People Power Hour, brought to you by KC Tenants. Every episode will address different aspects of the tenant struggle and America's problematic history with housing by providing in-depth historical analysis, testimonials, and stories from leaders who organize in their communities and who envision a better world where housing is treated as a human right. So please tune in every third Thursday of the month at 7 p.m. for the People Power Hour, brought to you by KC Tenants. Did you miss one of your favorite programs this week? No worries. Now you can listen to any of our programs from the last two weeks at archive.kkfi.org. My name is Darnell. At the end of our hour, here's some environmental news for the week of December 18, 2023. 
Democracy Now! reports Tesla has recalled software from nearly all of its 2 million vehicles on U.S. roads after regulators found the electric car manufacturer failed to ensure that drivers remain attentive while using autopilot, a system that can drive autonomously. This follows a series of accidents involving self-driving Teslas. For the first time ever, the UN Climate Summit ended with a global agreement to transition away from fossil fuel. The deal was announced on December 13th, the final day of the COP, as negotiations went into overtime. While the agreement was welcome as a step forward, climate activists and nations worse hit by the climate catastrophe warned it doesn't go far enough. In California, a group of children have filed a federal lawsuit charging the Environmental Protection Agency with failing to regulate life-threatening greenhouse gases despite knowing the harms it causes to children's health and welfare. It's the latest in a series of youth-led climate lawsuits brought by the nonprofit law firm Our Children's Trust. In August, a court in Montana ruled in favor of a similar lawsuit brought by young people who had sued Montana's government for violating their constitutional right as it pushed policy that encouraged the use of fossil fuel. Inside Climate News reports, the Pilot Travel Center at I-70 and U.S. 42 in Ohio has four charging ports and it is the first electric vehicle charging station in the country to be financed in part by the 2021 Federal Infrastructure Law. It is part of a partnership between General Motors and Pilot that will lead to chargers being installed at 500 Pilot and Flying J locations. The significance of this installation is that the federal government is showing progress in turning $5 billion worth of charger funding into completed project because the expansion of charging networks is an essential part of supporting a shift away from gasoline and reducing emissions from the transportation sector. Kansas Reflector reports, Pipeline industry added thousands of miles of natural gas, crude oil, and carbon dioxide pipelines to the national network in recent years. But the federal regulatory agency responsible for ensuring the vast system's safety failed to grow at the same pace. The Ham Inc. landfill near Lawrence will have to pay more than $34,000 in upgrades and penalties for violating clean air regulations. During an inspection of the landfill in March of 2022, the EPA found the landfill was emitting an illegal volume of methane gas and failed to correct it. Methane, like carbon dioxide, is a greenhouse gas that contributes to climate change by trapping heat, but it's far more potent. Methane contributes to both climate change and air pollution that can harm residents' health. Atropocene Newsletter reports, 
a clear film that is many microns thinner than a human hair could passively warm up and keep them frost-free through the winter without using a single kilowatt of electricity. This is the latest discovery from a team of researchers from China who have taken the ambient warmth in the atmosphere and harnessed it to increase ground temperatures by almost 5 degrees Celsius. Agriculture suffers under low temperatures, with crops frequently decimated by the cold. Some estimates show that between 5 to 15 percent of global crop production is lost to the ravages of frost each year. The farming industry has been trying to solve this problem for some time with a mix of protective plastic sheeting, heaters, insulating blankets, and films during the bitter months. But these either chew up lots of energy or are inefficient and results in a net heat loss. As raw materials, the researchers picked two main ingredients, a silicon-like methylloid called germanium and zinc sulfide, a naturally occurring salt. The crystals that make up these two ingredients have nanophotonic properties, meaning that at nanoscope scales, they are able to interact and respond to wavelengths of light, a trait that researchers realize that they could use to trap heat. Sustainability Newsletter Reports if governments were truly serious about reducing emissions, they would celebrate walking and subsidizing bicycles instead of $70,000 vehicles for the rich. They would improve public transportation and make our cities walkable again. And, bottom line, they would help us imagine a livable economy that uses less energy of every source, not more. When was the last time you were able to purchase a soft drink in a a reusable glass bottle. Soft drinks and glass bottles used to be great friends in the early days of the industry. However, the glass bottle was overshadowed by the plastic model as it is much easier and less expensive to transport plastic safely. But as it turned out, plastic isn't the superior packaging material in any aspect other than weight and resistance to breakage. Glass bottles are more hygienic and more capable of preserving the contents without a change in flavor. 93% less energy is consumed by a refillable bottle that can be reused 25 times. What if bottles were standardized and returned locally for sanitation and refilling? Then we could implement a reuse of glass bottles on a bigger scale. King Arthur Baking Company reports, King Arthur's regeneratively grown climate blend is an innovative whole wheat blend of unique wheat varieties made in partnership with the Bread Lab. The grains in the blend were grown using regenerative practices that allow farmers to reduce tilling, replant less often, and improve soil health. Its rich, nutty flavor and tender texture make it perfect for baking bread, muffins, scones, and more. More. Thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC. Please tune in again next week or listen to our podcast at any time. They paid paradise, put up a parking lot. 
you for listening to Eco Radio KC on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio. Eco Radio is brought to you each week by a team of collaborators, including me, Craig Lugo, Terry Wilking, Brent Rysdale, Bob Grove, and Dave Mitchell. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and guests and not of KKFI and or the Midcoast Media Project. You can find our calendar and a podcast of each show on Eco Radio KC's Facebook page, as well as on our show page at kkfi.org. This is Richard Mabian, and you can send inquiries and comments to our email at kkfi.org forward slash contact or message us on our Facebook page. Up next is Fiesta Musicale, followed by Noche Magica. Our outro music is Big Yellow Taxi by Joni Mitchell. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? Ooh.